folks, uh, you finishing up the donuts and stuff, and come on in, and we're gonna we're gonna get started here this morning. A uh, lot of lot of good stuff to eat out there, I know. So that'll be good. Um, is maybe you guys have known if if you've gone to the Wells DC on um, on Wednesday evenings, we've been doing a study of the Book of Ephesians. Okay, it's an awesome book. Uh, and let me give you a little background so you know where we're at this morning. Um, Ephesians is an epistle, which means letter, written by the Apostle Paul. It contains some of the richest theology in the Bible. It's actually a short letter packed full of theology and Christian practice. It, it presents the basic doctrines of the Christian faith um, as it's been put before comprehensively, clearly, practically, and even winsomely. In Ephesians, we are taught Christian doctrine, Christian duty, Christian faith, Christian life, what God has done through Christ, and what we are to do as his followers. Okay, so with, with the possible exception of Romans, no other New Testament letter contains a stronger or more exhilarating presentation of theology. Chapters 1 and 3 um, speak of things like predestination, election, adoption, redemption, the work of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, the work of God in joining people from all nations and all works of life in one holy body, the Church of Jesus Christ. Paul ties all this in with one overarching theme, the unity of the Church as the body of Christ. This metaphor of the body occurs throughout Ephesians and in Paul's other epistles as, as well. All right. This morning our text is going to be from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Um, so remember the first half of Ephesians now, when we went through chapters 1 and 3, consists of doctrine. Now Paul's going to give you the practical aspect, how to apply what you learned for, for the life and the well-being of the church. Um, so this morning, I'm going to basically be teaching verse by verse. So I would strongly encourage you to um, grab a Bible or open the Bible app on your phone and be looking through that. You'll get a lot more out of this this morning. Um, no need to look up here as much, folks. I'm ugly, but God's Word is beautiful. So keep your eyes settled on the Word this morning, and you will learn, I guarantee you, by looking at the Word as we teach it this morning. That's the way to do it. All right, so that being said, let's read the text. All right, so we're in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives 
and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so we <coughs> no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let's pray this morning before we get started. Father, as we, as we look into this text this morning written by your apostle, Father, so often, so often we try to do church, so often we try to be the church, Lord, but um, Lord, we mess up bad. And mostly, Lord, we mess up because we don't follow. We don't follow the precepts. We don't follow the principles. We don't follow the, the map the guide that you gave us in your word so that we can so they can we can be your body. So Lord, I pray this morning that we would just come into this text, Lord, help us learn this together, Lord, be with us and guide us, Lord. I pray that uh, when we leave here today, Lord, we'll have a better idea what what the church is like and how to be that church, Lord, and, and just just do it, Lord, do it, but only do it to glorify you. So let, so this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're, we got, um, you want to flip that slide over if you can. Uh, we got three parts, okay? It's going to be unity in the body, being equipped in the truth, and bodybuilding. So our first part is going to be unity in the body. So we'll try to Try to section this out a little bit. Like I said, we're going to kind of be going verse to verse and so just kind of glue to yourself into that Bible and we'll learn together. Paul starts out in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthily of the calling you've received. Paul, by mentioning his imprisonment, okay, he is reminding us that he knows that worthy Christian walk can be costly. Paul has paid considerable cost himself for the obedience to the Lord. Paul would not ask his readers, us included, to walk in a way that he himself had not walked or pay the price that he himself was not willing to pay. Paul's not trying to make us feel sorry for him here or using his Roman imprisonment to shame us into doing what he says. Instead, Paul is reminding us of his complete submission to the will of Christ. Paul had the ability to see everything in the light of how it affected Christ. Um, one of the commentators I wrote, I read, MacArthur writes this about Paul. 
He saw everything vertically before he saw it horizontally. He motive, his motives were Christ's. His standards were Christ. His objectives were Christ. His vision was Christ. Everything he thought, planned, said, and did was in relation to his Lord. He was in the fullest sense a captive of his Lord Jesus Christ. Paul now will instruct his leaders, readers, that's you and I included, right, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In the Bible, the concept of calling is an important one. Starting in the Old Testament, the prophets reminded the people of Israel that, you, that they have been called to God for a, to fulfill a specific purpose. In, his, in Isaiah 42, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by my hand and keep you. Another calling for, Christian is from, for Christians is from 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. First Peter, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and establish you. Paul himself was called on the road to Damascus. And now the Ephesians were called, and now you and I are called and incorporated into the body of Christ. Um, the New Testament Greek word for the word church, ekklesia, means the called at once. You and I are called. Now remember all the doctrine and instruction I mentioned that is in the first chapters of Ephesians 1 to 3. Now Paul is saying thus, all that good stuff you've learned, all those blessings given to Christ's followers, now has to be matched by how we live out our lives. Okay? I was given this verse from years ago in the, in the leadership class. It's from 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, a commentator named Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this, this weight between, on both sides, the equal weight of uh, knowing, knowing the word and then also doing the word, how you balance that out. Um, but, you know, you have to apply it equally, he said, it's like a scale. You don't want one side more than the other. You know the word, but you have to apply the word also in your life if you know the word. Um, but you have to know the word. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you have learned if you, if you don't apply it, but you have to know the word. Right doctrine is essential to right living. It is impossible to live a faithful Christian life without knowing the Bible. Doctrine simply means teaching, and there is no way even the most sincere believer can live a life pleasing to God without knowing what God himself is like and knowing the sort of life God wants him to live. Those who set biblical theology aside, set aside sound Christian living. If you don't know the word, you can't do the word, you can't be the word. All right? Paul uses the word worthy. We're in verse 1 still. Worthy means to have worth or value. All right? But it's more than that. It means to have worth equal to one's position. What is our position? We could do a sermon on just that question. We are members of what? A new humanity? Paul tells the Ephesians and us that God has chosen us to be his children. 
That is our position. Adopted and called them, right? We've been adopted, we're called, justified by paying the price for their sins. Give them the eternal kingdom in his heaven. Are we worthy of such a position? That's the question. Are we worthy? If we're worthy, then, then we have to walk worthily. We can't, you know, we can't act like the world. Paul reminds us to conduct ourselves accordingly. Next, we are told what attributes we need to have a worthy walk essential for unity in the body of Christ. Um, you can just flip that if you can. Oh, you got it. Okay. Humility is the first one. All right. The first attribute is humility. Humility is a compound word which means to think or judge with lowliness and have lowliness of mind, a minus or a low point of one's importance. Both the Greeks and Roman in Paul's time did not ha have a word for the word humility. Humility wasn't in their vocabulary. If you were humble in those times, that was a sign of weakness. The Christians literally turned the world upside down when it comes to be humble. The very concept was, was foreign and, and repulsive to the world at that time. They had no word in their vocabulary. But humility is the most foundational of all Christian values. We cannot even begin to please God without humility. Remember Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Out of all the virtues coming up to be listed, the first humility is the hardest one to live out. Only Jesus could truly make that claim himself. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon me and learn upon me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Man, I've hit humility pretty hard this morning, but it's so hard to be humble, right? As soon as you think you're there, what happens? You're not humble no more. Okay, so that, that's where you got to think about humility. Anyone who's been around church leadership knows that humility is especially important in the body of Christ. Humility is ingredient in all spiritual blessings, just as sin has its roots in pride. Every virtue has its roots in humility. Everyone. Okay, one, one commentator, Fay, writes that humility allows us to see ourselves as we are because it shows us before God as he is. Just as pride is behind every conflict we have with other people and problems, we have, we have fellowship with the Lord, so humility is behind every harmonious human relationship, every spiritual success, every moment of joyous fellowship with the Lord. All right, so the next attitude I have is part of the worthy walk is going to be uh, gentleness. All right. Older translations, and you've probably seen that they use the word being meek, you know, meekness, um, which is not, which that word kind of fell out of the vocabulary because people have the wrong understanding of the word meek. Um, people think meekness suggests weakness, which is not true at all. In either case, humility we just talked about produces meekness. The Greek here gives the meaning of, if you take the Greek of meekness, it's, it's actually the act of taming wild animals. Okay, that's what it means. Um, so so it's, it's actually meekness, gentleness, power, 
under control, okay? So in this particular case, it is meekness, gentleness, power under the control of God. Okay, that's what it means. So um, when you think of being meek and being gentle, that is a real quality that Paul is saying here, this is what you need to put on, all right? Next comes patience, which is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. Patience here literally means long-tempered and is sometimes called long-suffering. The patient person endures, okay? Negative criticisms, and the Bible is full of examples of patient people, right? Abraham received the promise of God, but he had to wait to see its fulfillment. The writer of Hebrews tells us, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Another biblical example of patience is the prophet Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah the prophet that no one would believe his message, that he had to be hated, maligned, and persecuted. All right? Paul himself was willing to endure any hardship, affliction, persecution, ridicule to patiently serve his master. Patience is something that we are honest. If we're honest with ourselves, we all need to work on, especially in this fast-paced society in which we expect instant results and instant satisfaction. A patient Christian accepts God's plan for everything without questioning, without grumbling, and, it, and is patient with his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. And that leads us to the fourth word, the characteristics not on your board, um, is bearing with one another in love. All right. The suffering aspect of patience now comes out. Peter tells us that love covers the multitudes of sin. So even if we are hurt by a fellow Christian, we are not to strike back, even get in some, even get even in some way. All right, not even think ill of that person. Instead, we're we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to demonstrate to them the difference. Um, it is to be a member of Christ's body. The forgiveness that comes from them. That's how we win the person over who has offended us. And I hope you can see how this is all related as we meet. We'll now lead into the next characteristic of a worthy walk. Um, unity. As believers, members of Christ's body, we're to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, as you can see, all these characteristics or, or the worthy walk are leading to the goal right here. Humbleness, gentleness, patience, leading to the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what's that mean? All right. So... We'll walk in a worthy walk here for the body of the church, the ultimate outcome of gentlemen, of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with another love is to maintain that unity. And we should be eager to do this, keeping in mind always as relate to each other. Keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace should be the constant concern of every believer. We're not talking about organizational unity as a lot of churches are doing or programs nowadays. Paul is talking here about the inner unity by which every member of Christ's body, the church, is bound to each other. All right? Spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church, but is instead given to the church by the Holy Spirit. It is this unity of the Spirit that Jesus himself so earnestly prayed for in the upper room by going to the cross. I'm reading now from John 17. I remain in this world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name you gave me, 
so that they may be one as we are one, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. I am them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as that you have loved me. All right, so I'm going to teach us some new math this morning. You want to click? All right. Church math. One plus one equals one. All right. Your preschoolers are going to correct you here, folks. Um, but that's one plus one is unity of the spirit. And that bond that preserves this unity, one plus one is peace. Think of this as a spiritual belt that binds and holds all this together. This bond of peace Paul describes in Philippians as being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent, one purpose, right? And behind this bond of peace is love, which Colossians describes as the perfect bond of unity, right? So I got a little illustration this morning to, to, to tell us how this might work out for us here, all right? So hopefully you're tracking with me so far, right? One of Paul's important teaching here in a large section of his letter is unity in the body. Paul is now teaching the truth as urged us the church to walk in a worthy manner consistent in our call. And what is your call? A member of church body? Remember, Paul gives us five things, and this is worth repeating, that we keep walking worthily. Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with each other, with love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. So let's look at how this might work for us. Um, so here's a disclaimer here, folks. I made this story up, all right? So don't, don't think this is a true story. So, all right? So here we are at church, all right? It's the day of the big meeting. We begin to come in. I arrive, and let's call it, it was in a bad or even horrible mood. So I burnt the roast beef at work. The customers were complaining. The owner yelled at me on my way out the door. I walked in here, and I am definitely not walking worthily. Instead, I'm acting the way a Christian should not be acting, right? I'm acting like somebody with worldly values. Let's throw in a few adjectives here. I am mean-spirited, short-tempered, and have no patience. I'm becoming argumentative, and when asked simple questions, I've been snapping at people. So... My brothers Dave and Dan noticed my attitude, right? Take me on the side. You didn't know you were going to be in this, did you? <laughs> Take me on the side and convince me in a loving way that I'm not myself today, right? As Luther would say, they act like little Christ in patient concern for me. And because of that Christ-like treatment, I am now myself walking in a worthy manner. As I said, there's a big meeting today and there's a controversy that's divided the church. So the leadership team, this is not real now, folks, all right? Don't, don't. So the leadership team decided to repaint the church doors. The decision was made that they should be painted a slate blue to be a good match for the exterior of the church. Some other folks got wind of this, and they were highly upset, insisting that church doors always need to be painted red to symbolize the blood of Christ, all right? So there continues to be this disagreement with some folks starting to lose their tempers. Now, Dave, 
stand, Larry, who is now walking worthily, and some of the others, uh, they show up, show enough love and patience to settle dispute, and everyone is in now unity again. That's how it works. Sounds, sounds silly, I know, sounds simple, I know, but the flip side isn't good, folks. Now, I realize this might be a silly example, but the truth is, is little things, and I've seen it happen more than once, I've learned more about how not to do church than how to be church, can often divide and cause much dissension and disunity. And unfortunately, I've watched small, seemingly unimportant matters literally tear a church apart. And that's where the teaching is coming in here from Paul. That is why Paul's teaching is so important. Remember those two ladies in the Philippian church with those hard-to-pronounce names, Udia and Syntyche? These two ladies must have been having a brawl, all right? And, and that was ruining the unity of the Philippian church. And I might add, the enemy loves to divide Christ's body. When all the members of the church walk worthily, Satan can't gain a foothold. Unity is maintained. Remember church math. Church math, one plus one is one. There is one body and one spirit. Remember our church math. Just as we were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. There is only one body of believers, the church, which is composed and made up of every saint, a saint being anyone who is saved, all right, who trusted in, is trusting, or will trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's no denominational, geographical, ethnic, or racial body, one body of believers. There's only Christ's body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul goes into great lengths to explain the mutual interdependence of the body parts here, right? If you, if you ever read that one, he, he puts it this way. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those body parts seem to be weaker and indis indispensable, and the parts we think of are less honorable, we treat what was special honor, right? So, so this is, this is the reason why we interact together, okay? We all have our own parts to play here, all right? So this is what we have to think about when we think about the body. God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Imagine that, huh? So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, Every part suffers, all right? One part is hurting, every part is hurting. If your brother and sister in Christ is hurting, you are hurting with him. This is, this is how God designed the church, um, okay? So you can see the unity of the body of the church and preserving that unity. Paul's teaching here is based on, on who we are, and that's one body. So if there's a division in the body, you follow me now, remember those church doors? The body, the whole church suffers, and we should never let that happen. I've seen divisions. I've seen churches divided. Um, it's not pretty. And let me tell you something. There ain't no, as my old friend used to say, there ain't no hurt like church hurt when that happens to a church. All right? One spirit now, there is, in the, so we get to one spirit. If you look down at verse 3, now there's an important distinction here. Paul is not saying you are all one spirit. As far as your goals and enthusiasm goes for the church, he's trying to clarify this now. But he is talking about here is that 
you are all one because of the work of one Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is calling attention to what the Holy Spirit has done in our conversions. We, are, we all probably differ in circumstances of when we are saved. Some, for instance, are Christians from early in life, growing up in the church. Some were saved as adults and so forth. And we have all have our own individual testimonies, and I'd love to hear them. They're cool. You hear mine sometime. It ain't good. All right? We have differences in the particulars of our conversion. That's why it is so great when we share our own personal testimonies. Mine starts out bad when it gets great when we get to Jesus, though. But what Paul is referring to is the actual working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to bring us to Christ. Salvation, the process, is the same for every believer, right? It's, it's the same. There's awakening to sin. We've become conscious that all is not right between us and God. And I won't go in the whole plan of salvation here except to say that we answered the call of Jesus coming through the Holy Spirit, and when indwelled by the Spirit, we begin to change. There's that supernatural regeneration that Paul's talking here. God places the new life of Christ in our hearts so that we now become a new person. And the Spirit continues to work. It's something called sanctification as we continue to be more Christ-like, conforming to the image of His Son. Remember Romans 8, 29. And the process continues our whole life. We all share this common experience, this new life in Christ. It's one Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, all believers are unified in the hope of our calling. In Christ, we have different gifts, different ministries, or places of service but only one calling which is the same for all of us. In every job, every, every ministry, there is no delineation of which is better. The Bible never says, you know, you preached the word, you're a pastor, you did this, you did this. They're all the same. The person who does the most menial task is put up on the same level as the apostles, the same level of someone who is really maybe highly regarded Often churches lift people up to, to high esteems. God has never put them there. God wants us all to be alike together, each body, each part, same importance. All right? Now, remember, we were called to uh, salvation, and then and that led to sanctification or be more Christ-like. Now, this process continues until the day comes when we leave this world and we go to be with our Lord or when he comes back for us, whichever one comes first. We're in verse 4 now. The word hope, which has changed its meaning in our modern English usage, um, hope, hope used to be a sure thing. Now hope is like, mm, I hope it happens, you know. Remember, um, every time we used to announce like a death in church, it was the sure and certain hope of, of you know, of salvation. It wasn't, it wasn't an iffy thing. So, so when you think of the word hope here, it's, it's actually um, in, in the hope of our calling actually means sure and certain hope that the biblical idea here and it refers to our future glory with Christ. That's our hope is actually, it's not a hope at all. It's actual a fact. It's a fact of our future, future glory with Christ. All right? So you see, it is the spirit who dwells in us that gives us that sure and certain hope 
and we will be with our Lord for all eternity. James Boyce notes that it's the work of the one Holy Spirit to grasp us into the body and give us this one hope. All right? As you look down at verse 5 now, don't look at me, I'm ugly, look at your Bibles. One Lord, really confession of Jesus is Yahweh. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men in which we will be saved. Acts 4.12 One faith means one truth. Because we have one Lord, we have one faith. There's only one gospel and there's no compromise. We believe that God Almighty sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become like us and die for our salvation. And it's through faith in his work, not anything we have done or can do, okay, but in his work of dying for us, we are saved. As one commentator put it, that one gospel that joins Christian people across all barriers of time, nationality, race, sex, and anything else we can imagine, it's that one faith, that one truth that we are united in the body of Christ. One body and one truth. All right? Next comes baptism. Our baptism, interesting that Paul includes baptism here, is the list of things that unify us because opinions about baptism that really divided churches. You know, do you immerse? Do you sprinkle? What about, you know, children's infants? But Paul's not really concerned about that here. Um, he's not talking about modes of baptism. He's concerned about what does baptism signify? Not as a means of salvation or special blessing, blessing but namely, Baptism signifies identification with Christ. The issue is not the method, but instead have you been publicly identified with Jesus Christ? If this, <clears throat> that is the issue. And if we, we as his body are publicly identified with him, then we can stand together for him. Verse 6, one God, one Father who is of all and through all and in all. As you probably noticed, Paul is giving us the unique work of the Trinity in these last few verses and how it relates to the church. Here we have God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We could do hours of descriptions of the wonders, the glory, the love, the powers, and the list goes on and on. Christ has taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. We see how intimate and warm-hearted his love is, but at the same time, the God remains majestic, amazing, and awesome. One scholar put it this way, one God and Father, along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, is over all and through all and in all. That statement points to the divine, eternal unity that the Father gave believers by his Holy Spirit and through his Son. We are God-created, God-loved, God-saved, God-fathered, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled, and God-blessed. Amen. Right. Our next section is going to be being equipped in the truth. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so gifts are something that we receive. We're all getting ready for Christmas, right? And receive spiritual, but we receive spiritual gifts. How? By the working of God's grace in our life. 
As believers, our gifts are not determined by our preferences. Natural abilities, merit, or any personal considerations. You can pray to God for a specific gift, but if he doesn't think it's right for you, you are not going to get it. Um, it's just the way it is. But only by God's sovereign will that we get specific gifts. We are gifted according to his plan, his purpose, and his measure. The Bible mentions many different gifts as Paul has them listed in several of his epistles. I've counted over 20 gifts listed in the Bible, and even that's not limited. It's not limited in scope as each individual believer is unique and can and should be used in his own uniqueness to serve the church. No gift might manifest itself the same way in two different believers. There's different gifts, in, in, but even the same gift may work itself out a little bit. That's, that's the wonders of our Lord. That's the wonders of our God. Not to use our gifts, though. Not to use our gifts is an affront to the giver. God and his wisdom and his grace, and it's also a huge loss to the church if you don't use your gift. Next, we have a more difficult, you want to look down at 8 and 9. This is a little difficult passage. They told us not to shy away from these, so here we go. Before Paul mentions or tells us what the gifts Christ has given the church, he uses Psalm 68:18 to show how Christ won the right to give these gifts. All right? Psalm 68 is a victory hymn. It was written to celebrate God's conquest of the Jezebite city and the triumphant acts Ascent of God represented, God represented the Ark of the Covenant up Mount Zion. So after the king had won such a victory, he would bring home the spoils and enemy prisoners to parade before his people. An Israelite king would take his parade through the holy city of Jerusalem and up to Mount Zion. Another feature of the victory parade would be the display of the king's own soldiers who had been freed after being taken captive by the enemy. These were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak. But their own, but their own king had given freedom to them. He ascended on high, depicts the triumph of Christ returning from battle on earth back into his glory on the heavenly king with the trophies of his great victory. So in his crucifixion and resurrection, I think this is what Paul's getting to now, Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death and won, what, a great victory and led a host of captives who were once prisoners of Satan and now returned to God. It's a vivid picture that God has yet unsaved people to whom belong to him. They are naturally in Satan's grip, and would have remained there had Christ, not by his death and resurrection, made provisions to lead them into captivity, into his kingdom. They were called by election by him. The next statement speaks of both the incarnation of Christ, where we descended into his earth, and then his ascension back after his victory over sin and death. Paul, again, will give us some vivid imagery of how this took place. All right, so um, this is Christ moving, going back and forth, and this is basically how Christ had won the, won the victory, and this is what Paul says, how Christ had won the right to give these gifts that we're going to be talking about in a minute, give them the church. All right, 
And moving on to Christ's gifts, these gifts given by Jesus are to be used for the purpose that he gave them for, the service and teaching of the church. These gifts are given to each Christian. That is, everyone has at least one gift. And for that reason, the church is only healthy and function fully when all are ministering. The gift now listed highlights that what, as one commentator put it, those who, um, these gifts are those who will reveal, declare, and teach the truth of the gospel. All right? So the first one is apostles. All right? The basic meaning of, um, I think you can click that now if you can. Um, the basic meaning of apostle, uh, you know what? Yeah, we didn't. All right, you go back. Okay. The basic meaning of apostle is simply that one sent on a mission. Two qualifications to be apostle were having been chosen directly by Christ and having witnessed the resurrected Christ. Apostles were authenticated by signs and wonders, as we read in the book of Acts. The apostles established church doctrine and kept the unity of the churches. Some churches have what's sometimes called a small A apostle. All right, these men were often missionaries and church planners. Well, I would say that some of the work of the apostles continues in this area. There's no scriptural evidence that the office of the apostle is functioning today. These gifts of the church were given for a specific reason for the foundation of the church in a specific time frame. That being said, we still as church body benefit from the work of these great men who, who basically started the church for us. All right? Prophets. There were some, there were, of course, Old Testament prophets that often received revelation from God. Being an Old Testament prophet was a dangerous and thankless job as many were killed by people who did not want to hear the truth. God had sent these men to deliver, um, he delivered the people, but people instead the people would murder them. New Testament prophets, though they usually did not receive direct revelation from God, in the same way Old Testament prophets did, were very useful building up the body of Christ. If you read through um, Acts, you'll see different prophets. Um, Agabus be one of them. When the office of the prophet is no longer, well, right now we, we would say the office of the prophet is no longer around, but the spiritual gift of prophecy remains. It is functioning mightily in the church if we, if we let ourselves use it. There are people with prophetic words that that come out in the church, and that part of the, the, uh, the prophets is still active in the church. The church was built on the foundational works of the apostles and the prophets. Evangelists. The work of the evangelists is to proclaim and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ for those who have not yet believed. He is the one who explains the truth of salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. When we think of evangelists today, we think of people like Billy Graham, Luis Pala, Greg Laurie, and the Harvest Crusade. And we need evangelists in our local churches also. Mercy Gate needs people willing to perform the work of evangelism, whether it's going out and witnessing in our community, like our efforts at visiting homes around the church or inviting our friends, co-workers, and neighbors to the church. Um, that's the work of evangelists. And it continues. Shepherds or pastors. This gift is given for the oversight of the church. Just as shepherds were responsible for the well-being of the flock, pastors are responsible for the spiritual well-being of the church. 
To be gifted as a pastor, you need to have a shepherd's heart. Some Bible translations have pastors and teachers listed together. John Stott points out that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. You know, I was, um, I was putting a burden on to, to teach the Bible for, year, for years now, but I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. We, have, we teach um, NGK kids. We're not pastors, but we're teachers. The teachers are important, but a pastor is a pastor and a teacher, somebody who, who does both. Pastors also teach the body by what? Preaching, teaching, writing, encouragement, and other ministries. But pastors also encourage us, remember, the, to walk worthy of our calling by walking that way themselves, providing an example for the body they serve. All right? Teachers, nowadays, probably the most underlooked and underused gift that was given in the church. Not only do we need teachers, but we need people who are willing to be taught. The church as a whole is suffering, suffering from biblical illiteracy. We don't know the word, we can't do the word, we can't be the word. These gifts, our leaders are needed to equip the saints. That's you and I. These gifts were given us to be equipped in the church. Remember that all gifts that Christ has given the church are ones that purposely, perfectly exemplify these gifts for giving of himself. All right? So I'm going to take a little look back at a couple of the gifts. Christ gave gifts to the church for one specific reason. As I mentioned before, we're all gifted in some way. Not only are we gifted, we all have received gifts. Let's look briefly at two of these gifts, evangelists, shepherds, or, or pastors. Evangelists, no job is more important than a church is to survive. Churches often receive growth by transfer, which means um, they get members from other Christian families moving the area. This more often happens in suburban church. You don't see it happen in in our church as much, right? Transfer growth or initial startup growth will not sustain or fulfill the mission of the church. We're all called to participate in growing the body, Christ church. Our church has gotten off to a good start as we've been doing outreach on the blocks. Um, neighbor Mercy Gate needs to continue doing this and add other outreach efforts to it. Internet, we're doing internet things, we're doing a bunch of different stuff, we have to keep it up. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need people to do this. So please look for the opportunity to be a worker in evangelism. Um, you know, in, um, Leslie shared some of that we did this morning, but as we, as we go knocking on doors and, and stuff, I mean, we've, this was actually, uh, you know, people were like kind of, oh, we can't do that. It's more like a, you know, a, a Jehovah's Witness or something like that, but it's actually been one of the richest and most fulfilling experience for a lot of people coming. People were, and this is, you might not, and those who've been with us will, will testify to this. People have been really receptive. And if people, we've not, they've come out. Some people were broken. We prayed with people. Um, so we had some great conversations with people. So it's a way to spread, to spread Jesus. So if you, it's not something you normally be afraid of. You can come along and just, you know, it, one of the neat things is when people bring the kids and the coaches and all people like, they see a bunch of kids come up with a little kid in your arm, they go, oh yeah, what's going on? Like, Open the door, you know? They see an old guy like me, I can't hurt him. But they see things, they see things that, 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 you know, make them open the door and we start talking to them. Then we start to, to get a relationship together. So it's important. 
And, and evangelism is just the main focus of what Christ has asked us to do. You remember the Great Commission, you know, Matthew 28, go in the world, make disciples of all nations, all right? When I used to work at the food bank, there was a, um, there was a lady that, when I ran a food bank, it was a bunch of churches conglomerate, and she was um, very liberal, and she used to say, say, you can't proselytize when you're giving out food, you know? And, and I said, well, why? we're giving them more important food. We're giving them food that leads to eternal life. So there's no greater gift that you can give people than give them Jesus. No greater gift than you can give somebody is to give them that salvation. You can feed them. You can do all kind of stuff for them now, but in the long run, for all time and all eternity, you give them Jesus, you've given him the greatest thing that you can possibly give a person. Um, so just keep that in mind. Amen? Amen. So, the, so the gift of pastors, also called elders, was given to the church, right? To equip the body, that's us, for ministry. Nowhere does it say that the pastor is to do all the ministry. All right? His job is to teach and equip. And I've seen this over and over again. Unfortunately, in churches, because of the lack of help from other members of the body, pastors do most of the ministry as well as other jobs which should be done by the body. When this happens, it limits the ministry of the church and often burns out good pastors. Ministry is service, and it should involve every member of the church. It's very clear here that the ultimate responsibility to do ministry or service lies with you and I. No pastor or even several pastors can do everything a church needs to do. No matter how gifted or talented or dedicated a pastor may be, the work to be done at the church where he serves will always vastly exceed his time and abilities. The pastor's purpose in God's plan is not to try and meet all these needs himself, but to equip the people given into his care to help meet these needs. Obviously, pastors also share in service, and sometimes members of the body help with equipping, right? But God's basic design for the church is for equipping to be done so that the saints can serve each other effectively. The entire church should be involved in this work. As far as care goes, the pastor's responsibility is to care for the congregation. But that don't leave you off the hook, folks. In turn, the congregation's responsibility is what? To care for the pastor. It's, it's, it's an ongoing thing here, all right? Some, in a lot of churches, that works one way a lot. One of the ways you can care for your pastor, right, is to make sure they're not overworked. Make sure they have all the help they're needed. So we're blessed to have two wonderful pastors, Dan and James, and we spend some time with them, and I know that they love you, and they serve this church well, and their, their, biggest, their biggest goal here is your continued salvation, your continued um, growth as a Christian, that you will grow in the mature Christian, and, and they want you to minister alongside of them. You know, I don't even have to ask them, they'll tell you that. As I mentioned, their primary job is to equip you and I by teaching 
and sometimes training to do service or ministry. But let me, let me talk to you like candidly here this morning. I'm an old guy that loves Jesus. I don't have nothing you know, else to say to you. But that, that all starts right here on Sunday morning, all right, at 1030. Often, you know, the, the problem is, though, remember we talked about this body, one plus one? Parts of the body are missing a lot. So, you know, if we have parts of the body missing, we're not complete. All right? So let's speak the truth in love, and well, let's just call it what the church is, you know, what it is. Church attendance isn't what it should be, and it's what happens in most, I, I agree, it happens in a lot of churches, but, um, and for years this has been one of my burdens, you know, to convince people that need to be here on Sunday. And I know people have jobs, I, I, I worked at one myself, I re- obviously it's understood you are, if you're sick or not physically able to be here, then hopefully you'll watch it online, right? Watching online is not the same as being here in person, okay? I mean, you can get teaching, you can be equipped, but the body's missing out, all right? Um, and honestly, I used to have it half right. I didn't have this whole picture in my mind of what it's supposed to be. I used to think that, um, you know, if you weren't here, you're missing, you're missing out, you're missing the teaching, you're missing all the fellowship and everything else. But that's only half true. The other half of the picture is that if you're not here, the body misses you. Remember the body, many parts, all right? So if you're not here, body parts are missing, folks. What happens if you're missing your leg? <laughs> you're not going to be doing well, right? You're going to be limping around. Sometimes we limp. Why do we limp? Because part of the body is not here. So we have to think about that. It, you know, um, it's important. Uh, but just as important, you know, that that is we miss you guys when you're not here. Everyone is vitally important. Paul teaches, and we spent some time on this day, about Christ's body having many parts. The parts are dependent on each other. Everyone has received gifts to be used to build up the body. When we are not here, the body suffers. The whole church misses you. In the early 90s, when I was doing these leadership things, they had these kind of crazy they're church growth programs. Maybe some of you know about them. One particular had a personal survey. In that survey were questions pertaining to how important is Christ in your life. You know, they talk about tithing and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And one of the questions was, how often do you attend church? And there's one big flaw in that program, though. It made people feel guilty. So it guilted some folks to come more often, but in the long run, it didn't make any difference. All right? Because who, who works in guilt? The enemy works in guilt, right? That's how Satan works. Our God doesn't work that way. He wants, to, you, he wants you to love coming here. He wants your joy, not your guilt. So I'm praying that more of us will not feel the joy, but have infectious joy. They can't wait to get here. Right? One other little story about that. I was, at one time, was an emergency backup preacher. Um, our pastor lost two sons in his brief uh, pastorate in my whole church. So I often got called to, to like, come in and preach at the last minute. I need to come up with quick messages. Anybody remember David Letterman's top 10 lists he had? <laughs> top 10 lists where you do this? 
All right. So here's what I came up with one, one week. I came up, top 10 reasons why I can't come to church on Sundays. All right. I won't give you the whole list. Some of them were pretty funny. But I'll give you the top reason. Top reason was this. If Satan can't make you bad, he will make you busy. No judgment here, folks. I know life is hard and everyone is busy. So let me just say you are loved. Your gifts are valuable to the church. You're very much a vital part of this body. Um, if you're not here, you are dearly missed. All right? Okay. Well, next section is bodybuilding, keeping the church feet, exercising your faith. All right? Exercising your gifts. Paul tells us that this equipping will continue until we all obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. All right? So we're, we're, we're hitting into the last section of the... Of the, of the uh, text now. Paul tells us this equipment will continue until we all obtain that unity, right? The knowledge of the Son of God, the manhood, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Um, so we strive uh, for the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of Man. We can only move in that direction by being equipped. All right? Now, commentators disagree whether this... Um, Paul is talking about this unity is obtainable, this final, uh, this final unity I'm looking now is um, we're to grow up in every, we're, I'm, I'm working down to verse 15, we're to grow up in every way in who is the head Christ, um, you know, and, and we're going to put all this together, all right? Commentators, they're like, well, can we do this during this lifetime? And the truth is, maybe we can't. You know, maybe this is too much to be able to, to do for the church. But the truth is, um, we are called to work towards this commitment our entire, our entire time here. Because if we don't, we're going to go, we're going to go the other way. All right? So uh, in any case, the church is to keep moving towards the goal. Churches who do not strive, strive moving forward on this area gradually become useless, and their effectiveness as Christ's body, you know, is greatly diminished. You remember our series in Revelation and Jesus talking candidly with the church, and what did he say? If you don't change, I have to come and what? Remove your lampstand. You know, so that's, that's what happens. There's a lot of lampstands that have already been removed, and the churches maybe don't even know it. All right? Okay, so we have to do that. All right? I came up with this, this little metaphor so we can kind of keep this last section in our minds. Bodybuilding, keeping the church fit, and exercising your gifts. All right? Now, don't laugh. If I want to be fit, what do I need to work at? I need to go to the gym, right? If you want to be fit, you need to go to the gym. You can't, you can't just say, I want to be fit and not, be, and not do anything. To be fit, I would need to go to the gym and work it. Once I become fit, and if I wanted to stay fit, I would have to continue this practice, right? If Mercy Gate Church wants to be fit, it needs to work at it. We need to be equipped. How do we become equipped? By coming as often as we possible and being equipped by Dan and James, our pastor teachers, right? We need to exercise our spiritual gifts, all right? Exercise our spiritual gifts. So how do we become equipped? By our pastors teaching, by sitting under them, and by exercising the gifts that were already given to us, all right? We have to use them. Remember, we were given gifts to help us grow in the faith and learn those, you know, and part of the gifts are our pastor teachers, 
They were the first gifts were given and then were given our individual gifts. In addition, you and I were also given these individual personal gifts for building up the body of Christ. So the reacher even worked towards that spiritual maturity Paul is talking about. Spend time at Mercygate learning from Dan and James on Sunday mornings. That's how you do it. That's how you become the mature Christian. Now, now Paul has in here about becoming the mature, the mature man. And don't don't take offense, ladies. Well, all that means is the Greeks, you know, the Greeks had this image of growing up of into this man who was, you know, he was the mature man, both physically and intellectually. That was the that was the goal here. So Paul now is using this as is the full stature of what the in, in the Greek world, the full stature of a man is the full stature of what the church now needs to attain to to be um, the church that Christ wanted. And like I said, will, will the church actually get there or will Jesus come back first? Um, I, you know, I have my opinion. I'll give it to you on DC this week. But the reason, but the main thing is we're to work at it by, by keep doing it. So to reach or even work toward that spiritual maturity Paul was talking about, Spending time, learning, okay, become fit, you know, go to our pastors, go to our DCs, be equipped, do ministry, do works of service, go out, knock on doors, do what we can, take care of the church, take care of each other, all right? So here's another thing about being, being taught by our pastors and teachers, you know. Paul has a big thing here about saying, um, being carried away and blown by every wind of doctrine of human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes, all right? So what is he saying here? He's saying that if you don't, if you haven't learned the truth, you don't know the difference when somebody doesn't tell you the truth. And, you know, I come from a, um, in denomination that was, we left because um, it was a mess. You know, it was it was real out and out heresy, and I'll tell you the stories at one point. But um, if we don't have, if we don't know the truth, there is no way we can do it. And what else do we have in our popular culture? Not only have churches abandoned the truth, but we have a popular culture um, that specializes in what po- political correctness. Um, Prophet Isaiah put it this way: "Woe to you who call evil." Woe to you to call good evil and evil good. Now look down at verse 15. We know the truth. We can speak it to others in love. And now we are more Christ-like in how we think and act. And we're also working worthily. Remember, we're walking worthily. I'm sorry. Remembering back when we were talking about walking worthily of our calling. Verse 16. Now we can use our own spiritual gifts as we grow and minister together. All right? So remembering church math, one plus one is one. We are one body with one truth. We all now coming from the knowledge of that same truth, taught and equipped, right? Again, you see taught and equipped. You got to be here, taught and equipped. Combining our gifts to work towards one common purpose. All right? And what, and let me leave you with this thought that, um, and I said this earlier, one common purpose. We all grow together, remember? You know, I don't know how, how much they knew about medical science in that days, but, you know, these ligaments in this body all joined together, you know. This is, this is our calling. And I said it before, um, 
This is why we come here on Sunday mornings. One of the reasons outside of being taught and everything else and to do ministry, one part of the body is hurting. The other body, part of the body comes along. And in conference, that part of the body, they take some of the, some of the hurt that this body has, this part of the body has, and they, they, they take some of that away from them by being there, by praying with them, by being in unity with them. Um, is that part of the body? So that's that's why you want to be here, folks. Um, you know, would you, you know? I don't know what else to say to tell you, but um, you know, God didn't give me all the words here. But get here, learn, walk worthily, and do the ministry that Christ has asked us to do. And let's pray, Father, Your Son, we. In your son, we are one body. Help us to understand how much we mean to each other. Lord, you gave us gifts to build up our body here at Mercy Gate. Teach us how to be better. Teach us how to be better using what you've given us. One body, one truth. To build your church and love. In Jesus' name, amen.
I'm going to pray that you don't leave without getting prayer this morning. Anybody here is willing to pray to you and you're able to pray to you. Lord, have the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.